Welcome to Immigration Nation, a podcast that dives deep into the complex and often misunderstood world of United States immigration through interviews with leading U.S. immigration attorneys. This podcast aims to provide a comprehensive overview of the policies, struggles, and victories within the ever-changing world of immigration. Each episode will offer fresh perspectives and valuable insight using real-life stories to navigate our nation's immigration system. If you have an immigration question or an existing case, join us here on Immigration Nation, because this podcast was made for you. everyone, my name is Klein and I'm joined today by Mr. Gary Davis. Today we're going to be going over some frequently asked questions about the F1 student visa. So let's jump into it. student visa may sound like a simple process, but there are definitely some important factors that go into it um, to make sure that your petition isn't denied. Is that correct? It is. So a student visa is basically a temporary visa, or what we call in the business a non-immigrant visa, as opposed to immigrant, which would be somebody that wanted to stay on a permanent basis. Mm. So you're telling the government by coming on an F-1 student visa that you're planning to come here, get your education, and then leave at the end of your stay. Whereas the the immigrant process or the green card process is a different intention, right? It's the intention to stay on a permanent basis and live here, make a life here, raise a family here, work here, those kinds of things. So those are a little bit different from each other, but there are certainly paths that lead from the student visa into permanent residence if that's a goal for someone who's come here as a student. So it may be a bit more challenging than the average adjustment of status, correct? If somebody were to go on that path from the student visa to something else in United States immigration. So what are those sorts of different pathways? There's lots of different ways you can do it, um, but it's going to vary individual to individual what those options might be. Um, For example, the most common path would be to change over to a work-authorized visa, for example, an H-1B work visa, and then move from that through an employment sponsorship situation into permanent residence. That's uh, referred to as an EB-2 or an EB-3 type visa, depending on the education level Mm -hmm. and the experience. So that's one. Uh, Obviously, there are family options. For example, you know, people come here on on a student visa and they meet someone, they fall in love, they decide to get married. Mm And so there is a path through marriage, whether it's through uh, marriage to a permanent resident or a U.S. citizen, that could lead to like a family option for becoming a permanent resident here. If someone comes and perhaps they're doing a PhD, for example, and they have established themselves as outstanding in their field, there is an O-1 outstanding or extraordinary ability visa for someone who's kind of reached that high level oh, wow. and has some international recognition. And then you can pivot that into uh, an extraordinary ability green card as well, which is called an EB1A. Or for um, you know PhDs, academics that are doing research at a high level or are outstanding teachers in the country, there's an EB1B. So those kind of extraordinary ability paths are available. Mm. If someone <clears throat> has come here with a very high net worth, they have a lot of cash, they wanted to come do a master's degree, for example, but they're independently wealthy and they have, say, a million dollars cash that they could invest in the U.S. There is an EB-5 green card that's a pathway to permanent residence uh, as an investor into a company or into an investment bank called a regional center here in the U.S. to create jobs and stimulate the economy with that cash injection or investment. Um, and so those are those are basically the paths that you would be able to, to follow family, extraordinary ability, employment sponsorship, or investment 
would be the typical paths. The last one I'll mention briefly here um, is that if someone has come from a country where there are particular challenges or concerns about persecution because of political opinion or religious beliefs or sexual orientation or something like that, mm -hmm. then there is an asylum path as well that would allow someone who's here on an F-1 student visa to seek protection from the U.S. government uh, so that they don't have to return to a country where they would have those risks of being harmed or persecuted mm -hmm. because of one of those protected grounds. So those would be the, the paths that I could think of. Right. Wow. So um, for those of you listening or watching, we just did a video on the K-1 fiancé visa, so I'd like to ask for that option. Um, so marrying a U.S. citizen or a green card holder, so how would someone adjust their status through that option? That's probably the most straightforward one, mm -hmm. but obviously it involves the, uh, the will and desires of another person, right? So the, in mm -hmm. other words, the barrier to that avenue would be finding someone that you can get along with and that wants to be married. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you have that opportunity, <clears throat> then basically even while you're still a student or perhaps at some point in the past you stop being a student uh, and are even here in the country without legal status, if you were to marry a resident or a citizen of the United States, then you file an application for permanent residence from here. And basically it's, you know, for spouses of citizens in particular, it's a one-step process where the citizen files a petition, does a financial sponsorship as well. Uh, the F-1 student would um, file a green card application that'd be processed by U.S. Immigration, the USCIS, and then uh, it leads to work authorization through that application process, travel mm -hmm. authorization as well, so they can travel out of the country without the need for a visa. Wow. Eventually an interview with the immigration authorities where they're gonna test uh, basically background, financial fitness of the sponsor, because uh, there is a financial sponsorship component there, mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, the marriage to see whether or not it's actually a legitimate marriage. Right. And that's the biggest thing there is as long as the intention is to be together in a relationship and to make a life together uh, and not just to get a green card or a business transaction or something like that, uh, then, then chances are it's going to work out just fine in the end. Mm -hmm. It's a relatively uh, short process. Typically here in, at this time in uh, Dallas and Houston, we're seeing about a 15-month turnaround from submission to completion. Okay. So it's not terrible. And the work and travel permits uh, come along the way so that you've got that flexibility to work anywhere that you'd like to, including for yourself or have your own company, mm -hmm. and then traveling out of the country without the need for a visa. So there's huge benefits there. And when you're married to an American citizen, the other benefit is once you become a permanent resident, it's only three years till you're eligible to file for U.S. citizenship. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it's a path to actual citizenship that you want to plan for, you know, from the beginning when you get into the relationship. Wow. So there's probably a couple of things to be careful of with that option, right? Yeah, the biggest one is just the, the relationship has to be legitimate, right? I mean, there's right. historically, you know, there's even movies about this, a movie called Green Card from back in the day, for example, that's, that's pretty funny. But basically, you know, if you're trying to scam the government and use this as a path to, um, you know, to permanent residence by fraud, hmm. you, you want to stay away from that. I mean, the, the government, they do this for their career, for their living mm -hmm. uh, as an agency and all the employees there are very committed to protecting the U.S. country, right, protecting the whole country. And, um, and so they're, they're very vigilant about watching out for, for fraud and things like that. So as long as the relationship is legitimate, that's the most important thing. Some other things to th look out for are the financial sponsorship part that I mentioned. Uh, if, if someone is sponsoring for permanent residence through a marriage relationship, as I mentioned earlier, they have a financial sponsorship obligation and so if, if they're not working or if they're uh, disabled in some way or if they don't have sufficient assets or income to qualify as a sponsor 
then you could run into some trouble because immigration doesn't want to give someone a green card who's then going to become dependent on the welfare system, right? right? And they're very concerned about that and, mm-hmm. and protective of, of that system. And so as long as they've got sufficient income or assets, we're okay there. It's just a math question. Uh, but if they don't, then that could be a challenge uh, that needs to be addressed, perhaps with a, a co-sponsor of some kind, someone that steps in to help support the application who's not the actual sponsor uh, for the green card. Uh, or we can sometimes, in some situations, use the income or assets of the person being sponsored. Uh, for example, if they have work authorization through their student status, which sometimes mm-hmm. you can get, and they have an income themselves, and it's a marriage relationship to a U.S. citizen, we can use that the income of the person being sponsored to actually qualify for the financial sponsorship piece. Oh, wow, so okay. those are the two, marriage fraud and the financial sponsorship uh, are the big ones. And then the last one would just be background. There is a very extensive background check that's conducted on each applicant for permanent residence. Mm-hmm. And that background check is basically uh, going to cover things like criminal history, immigration history, uh, and that's anywhere in the world. They're checking with Interpol and other agencies internationally just to make sure this is not a person that's been involved in you know, terrorist activity and criminal activity and those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So those are the big three. Gotcha. So what about our other options? There was a business option that students and students are, you know, typically driven. So it's, True. you know, probably they want to start their own business or maybe join a business. So could you talk about that option? Sure. It's, it's a little more complex than the marriage option, but mm-hmm. I'll do my best to unpack it um, in a way that people can, can process. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I can geek out on this stuff sometimes. <laughs> I know you can. Thing, so, um, so basically, there's a couple of different paths, and it all depends on the net worth of the individual that's being sponsored. As I said before, some people that are here as students are already established financially somewhere in the world, or they have a family that is very well off, and so they're able mm. to afford the education here, which is very high quality, especially when you get to the, to the college level, university sure. level. And so... Um, if they've got access to enough cash and if they have nationality from certain countries, there's a couple of different paths. So we'll start with moving from a student visa to what's called an E2 investor visa. There's a list of countries that the State Department keeps that the United States has a treaty of commerce, friendship, uh, you know, economic exchange, whatever they call it. Um, some notable examples are most of Western Europe, uh, Japan and South Korea. Um, Jordan has a, has a treaty, Pakistan and Bangladesh. Notable exceptions are China and India, which do not have those treaties with us, mm. which to me is a little bit surprising, but I think when you consider the population size mm. of those countries, it could be um, somewhat challenging for us to absorb you know, that many people that would potentially qualify for it. But, but anyway, if, if your country of nationality is on the list, and if you've got, we say at least $100,000 U.S. that you'd be willing to invest. Oh, wow. You buy a business here and could switch over from an F-1 student visa to an E-2 investor visa and run your own business. Now, by itself, that scenario allows you to pivot out of the F-1 student and get into a situation where you can have your own business and run your own company here. But it doesn't have a built-in pathway to a green card. There's other ways to get there, and I'm sure we'll have an episode on that at some point. Mm-hmm. But just know that if you've got access to that kind of cash, then you may be able to pivot out of the F-1 student visa and switch over to the E-2 investor visa option and have your own company here and continue going to school if you wanted to do that, by the way. Uh, but if you had some a higher net worth, if you had access to you know closer to a million dollars in cash, which obviously not a lot of people do, but some people do, mm-hmm. um, then you could go down what's called the EB-5 route. And EB-5 is basically 
you make an investment into a company uh, and you have to show that that investment is going to grow the number of employees, a, a net new jobs of 10 full time uh, within a two year time period. Wow. Yeah, so if you've got the cash and you want to invest it in this way, then EB-5 is a good option. There's two different paths there as well. One is through what's called a regional center, which is kind of like an investment bank, I guess. They, they basically have some deals that are coming in that people can invest in, funds that they put together to raise money, capital to, to do usually real estate development projects or business expansion projects, something like that. And basically, um, you, you, give a, you give them your cash. They sort of become a sponsor for the EB-5 green card. And then, uh, and then they are kind of holding all the responsibility for the job creation. And, and typically, these funds are going to range from, you know, anywhere from maybe $10 million to $50 million, something like that, as a fraction or a portion of the total, you know, funding of this development project. Typically, you'll see this in uh, revitalization projects and in, in uh, urban areas and things like that, where things have gone into disrepair and decay. They'll buy up a, a big area of, of land and build some big you know, office building or you know, high-end apartment complex or even a stadium, for mm. example. So that's EB-5, but you got to have the cash. <clears throat> uh, E-2 is another way to pivot out of F-1 temporarily as long as you have some cash and an idea that you want to pursue mm-hmm. investment-wise. So if you're you know, kind of doing this pivot and you're going into an EB-2 or EB-3 or even a 5, do you have to prove to USCIS that your original intent was to be a student and not to get a green card, or how does that work? That's a very good question. Mm-hmm. So as I mentioned early on, we've got the, the different concepts of immigrant, which is the green card, and non-immigrant, which is a temporary purpose visa, right? Mm. Like a visitor visa, a, a student visa, an investor visa, those kinds of things are all temporary in nature. Okay. So to be able to qualify for those, you have to show the U.S. government that you have an intention to depart at the end of your stay. Okay. Whereas with an immigrant, it has to be the opposite. It has to be your intention that you are intending to permanently reside here. Right. And in fact, that becomes an issue for some people that like to travel a lot because if they're gone too much from the country, the government can actually take away permanent residence and force them back into a visa because they're obviously just a temporary visitor and they're using it as a permanent visa, which you can't do. Mm. So it's, they they really hold everyone to that standard of immigrant versus non-immigrant. What is your intention? Now, once you've arrived here, your intention will be, as a student, for example, that you're going to stay on a temporary basis and just go to school, complete your studies, let it play out, and then leave. That's what your intention is at that time. But the truth is, people are people, and intentions change. And the law recognizes that. And so it's okay if you're moving from the non-immigrant realm into the immigrant realm. That's okay to do that, as long as when you enter the country, your intention was to be here on a temporary basis. If your intention changes because of opportunities that presented themselves or whatever, totally fine. Oh, okay, nice. So is there another option for people to, you know, kind of become a citizen on their own or invest in themselves? Yeah, the other one that we should talk about is called the National Interest Waiver. And frankly, we probably should add this to the list of, of, a, of a category of option that we do uh, an episode dedicated on because I get so many questions about this, and there's several reasons why. But let me talk about the requirements, and then we'll get into what some of the questions that people ask, and and I'll do my best to briefly respond to some of those common questions that I get. Uh, So if someone's going to come to the U.S. to do work that has the potential to benefit the country as a whole, 
the typical kind of standard case example would be uh, medical research, right? So if someone's here doing like genetics research or microbiological research on cancer or Alzheimer's or other disorders that are genetically based or whatever, the kind of medical research, even pharmaceutical research, people that are doing work and have a unique background and skill set that make them qualified to do that specific kind of research, um, we want those people here, yeah. right? And so the National Interest Waiver provides that opportunity, that pathway for them to do that. Uh, generally, you have to have a master's degree or a higher degree uh, to be able to qualify. And you have to, again, show that the scope of the work that you're going to be doing has the potential to benefit the country as a whole. Mm. And that can be somewhat challenging outside of the medical researcher. Con- I mean, medical research is is easy to show how that has the potential to benefit the whole country. Definitely. If they have some breakthrough and cancer you know, prevention and, and treatment, obviously it's going to have a huge impact, a huge benefit, heart disease, Alzheimer's, those kinds of things, right? Mm-hmm. Medical research is, is kind of an easy way of looking at it. But there's other things, too, that qualify as being in the national interest. For example, uh, some cases that I've, that I've been involved with in the past are – uh, or work for a firm that we had some of these kinds of opportunities to, to work on national interest waiver cases, uh, the person that developed the idea behind HOV lanes for traffic control. That guy oh. got a national interest waiver. Wow. You can see how, right? Because the work that he was doing had the potential to benefit the country on a broad scale. Yeah. Right? Uh, there was another guy, a, an agricultural scientist, that developed a, a agricultural method for cultivating rice that led to a super high yield. Well, you could see how that would, you know, create a benefit for the country as a whole when you're talking about food production, right? Definitely. So it's not just medical research. It could be, you know, logistics. It could be agriculture. It could be, uh, in some cases, it could be perhaps, you know, something on the academic side of things um, where they're doing research on an academic basis, like at a university, has the potential to have an influence or an impact on the country as a whole. A national interest waiver is an option. You'll, one of the reasons it becomes challenging for people to understand how they qualify is that there's really three parts to a national interest waiver. One is um, you have to show that the work that you're doing has that national scope potential that I've been mentioning. Mm-hmm. The second one is they have to show that there's something unique about their background that makes them qualified to do that work. In other words, something about their background they're bringing to that opportunity creates the potential for the benefit for the country. Right. Th- that there's something about them that's a little bit unique, uh, maybe a... Uh, two different degree paths, two different master's degrees that sort of work together, genetics and microbiology, for example. Wow. So that make them a little bit unique relative to their peers. Uh, and for us to realize that scope potential, they really need to be doing this work. And the last one is, and this is where people get really tripped up, hmm. you have to have the present opportunity to do that work. And people miss that requirement because when you read about National Interest Waiver online, for example, even at a government source, like USCIS.gov, a very good place to get information about this stuff. Um, they say specifically that you don't need a job offer to apply for a national interest waiver. That is 100% true. You have to show that you presently can do that work. They don't want to give someone a green card as a national interest waiver for them to come here and you know, own a company doing food service or something. I mean, they want to make sure that when they come here, they can start doing that nationally significant work right away. Mm-hmm. So a job offer would meet that requirement, even though the law says it's not required specifically, but what else would meet it then is the question I get. And the answer is it could be your own company that you set up to do consulting in what you do and four or five contracts from companies that want to hire you to come in and do that work for them. Or 
perhaps it would be a contingent job offer, a, a job offer where an institution or a company says, we intend to put this person to work for us for human resources reasons, regulatory reasons, we can't offer a job specifically, but if you guys give him a green card, then we'll put him to work right away as soon as he gets the green card. We're just waiting for that to happen first before we can make a formal offer, right? So there's, there's certain things that we can do to present a case to the government that this person will be able to do that work right away when they get that, that green card through the National Interest Waiver. Right, right. So those are the big three of kind of self-sponsored, EB1A for extraordinary ability, uh, EB1B for outstanding professors and researchers, and mm-hmm. the National Interest Waiver, which gotcha. is which is a really, really good option for a lot of people to pursue when they have that unique skill set and background and the opportunity. Right. So let's see, have we talked about all of our options or is there anything that we're leaving out from an F1 student visa moving into that permanent resident status? Yeah, so there's the next one that we can talk about is um, some people call, call it labor certification. That's the technical term. Okay. Some people call it PERM, which is an acronym that the Labor Department uses for that same process. Uh, some people refer to it as EB2 or EB3. Okay. And EB stands for employment-based, hmm. level two or level three. And so basically that's company sponsorship through employment. Hmm. So let's say that a student is finishing up their education. They've had an internship with a company that's made them an offer. When a student graduates at each level of, of education, which would be either associates or bachelors for one, masters for two, and a doctorate level for three, Okay. Their student visa allows them to apply for what's called optional practical training, or OPT, which gives them a work authorization to go do work in their field of study. And for people that are in science, technology, engineering, or math majors, STEM majors, Mm -hmm. uh, you actually get a one-year OPT with a potential for a two-year extension, so three years total. Okay. Non-STEM just get one year at each level. But once they have that work authorization and they get a job, then they're able to potentially negotiate with their employer to sponsor them for an EB2 or EB3 labor certification uh, to be able to move from student visa status over to to permanent residence through that employment sponsorship. Gotcha. And there's no real requirements. I mean, we've done jobs with that had no experience or education required and just had one of those approved recently, actually. Those are risky, but you can do it. Mm Uh, it's ideal if a person has at least a year of full-time paid work experience doing something related to the job that's offered with a different employer, not the one that's sponsoring them. And then obviously the higher the education level, the, the more restrictive we can, the, we can be with the requirements for the job to make it so that we maximize their chance for success. Right. Uh, there's basically three stages of processing. We start with getting a wage determination where the labor department mandates how much the company has to actually pay that person to do that job. Because the government doesn't want, you know, foreign nationals to come in and compete with U.S. workers for jobs because they're willing to take less money for the immigration path and depress wages for U.S. workers. So they require the employer to pay a certain wage that they mandate uh, to be able to move forward with the process. Mm-hmm. So they make that determination as the first step. Second step is actually recruitment. The employer that's sponsoring the person has a, has a very strict regulated process for advertising for that job as though it were available to the public. And it's, it's kind of silly, but one of the things that the Labor Department requires is a newspaper ad. Huh. And we used to do, when I started <laughs> out, we would do Wednesday afternoon newspapers because 
It was the cheapest because nobody read the Wednesday afternoon newspaper. <laughs> but these days, nobody reads the newspaper. Mm-hmm. And, and yet the Labor Department requires us to pay for Sunday newspaper ads, which are the most expensive. Wow. In the biggest paper in the local area. So you can't pick, you know, one of these smaller community papers. you got to pick, you know, the Dallas Morning News or the Houston Chronicle or Fort Worth Star Telegram. And you got to pay those ridiculous rates. Sometimes Am I several to ask thousands. How much it is? Yeah, it's oh. like two thousand plus for an ad that's like three or four lines. No way. It's how newspapers are still alive. <laughs> yeah, somebody did a really good job lobbying the labor department to keep that as a requirement. It makes yeah, no sense because nobody reads the paper. Well, we have to do postings in those same areas to show those that are working there, you know, what this job is paying, and just to make sure that U.S. workers aren't being disadvantaged within the company context. So there's a very regimented approach that we have to do. Uh, It takes about 90 days uh, to get it all done. Uh, The State Workforce Administration here in Texas, that's Texas Workforce Commission, also has to have a posting there. So it's very publicized, even in the newspaper, uh, to make sure that everybody has the chance to see that there's a job available. Yeah. And then as people apply for the job, or maybe no one does, but as people apply for the job, then the employer has to review those applications for the job see whether or not they're actually qualified for the job uh, and if they are qualified for the job then they either have to offer them a position that's in addition to the one that we're doing or we stop the case oh, wow. and so the way i view it is that we want to get the smartest best most talented most capable people working in our economy regardless right we just want the best that we can get mm-hmm. and so that's part of what we help our employer clients do with the eb2 or the eb3 process that's interesting i never yeah. thought about it like that and the last one that I'll just mention briefly here, because we don't have a lot of control over it, there is a lottery. The government puts out uh, basically 50,000 or so green cards that are available each year that are just given out for diversity purposes. Huh. So if you're from a country where there's a high volume of people applying for permanent residence or green cards already, then the country will be excluded from the list for that given year. But as long as you're from a country that doesn't have that heavy of a, of a load coming into the country, then you can apply to be included in that lottery selection. And there's millions of people that apply every year. Really? There's no cost to apply. And basically, it's 50,000 visas from so that we can maintain a, a level of diversity in our immigrant population here in the U.S. So they, they 100,000 win, 50,000 come. Uh, with their families and there's some requirements around it as well but but it's free to apply and so people that are here on f1 absolutely can jump into the diversity visa lottery wow. and see if they happen to get selected and if they do great i had no idea that there was a lottery going on yeah there is <laughs> that's pretty cool yeah frankly it's a real benefit to each of us that we've got this program in place from my perspective. Definitely. You've got a great perspective, very positive outlook. Yeah. <laughs> well, I just wanted to say thank you very much for coming on our show today. We've really enjoyed having you, um, and we always do. Um, and I just want to say thank you for watching, everyone. We've had so much fun talking about F1 student visas and the pathways and the options that are available to everyone out there. Um, so tune in next time. This podcast has been prepared for general information purposes only and is not legal advice. This information is not intended to create and receipt of it does not constitute an attorney-client relationship.